Thank you, Jasper. Can you hear me okay? Good afternoon, church. It's uh, my privilege to teach this afternoon. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Peter. I'm an elder here at KW Redeemer. I'm thankful to have this opportunity to do this in person. Uh, the last two times uh, was in front of a laptop in my basement. Uh, this is definitely better than that, although apologies to everyone online. Hopefully we can see you in person again someday soon. I'm going to be preaching today on the topic of Christian community, what it means to be part of a Christian fellowship. Are we all just a bunch of people with similar interests, just like any other club or association, or is there something deeper going on? What makes Christian community different? And what roles and responsibilities do we have as members of that community? I'm hopeful that in diving into this text, we're able to develop a greater appreciation of the great gift that we are to one another. Whatever your role or place in this community, we've all had at least a bit of a taste of what it means to not be able to physically gather together in community over the past two years. And that experience has certainly been painful. And it's part of what's prompted me to dive into this topic and to do some teaching on it. I'm also hopeful that this will help us see our place in this community and how we can be part of its health and its life. Because there's actually no such thing as not contributing to the Christian community. Every single member of the community, however involved or uninvolved, whether you only sign in online or you come once a month, once every three months, you are a contributing member of this Christian community. Some contributions are to the benefit of that community and some contributions are to its detriment. There's no such thing as non-contribution. We're all contributing to it because we're all part of this body of believers. So with that in mind, in the back of our mind, let's dive into this text this afternoon um, to learn a bit um, more about life in Christian community together. Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What we'll see in this text is that the implications and expectations of living in Christian community are born out of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. 
Christian community exists only in Christ and through Christ. It's nothing more than that. It's nothing less than that. And we need to see it through that lens in order to fully appreciate how to live rightly in relation to God, in relation to ourselves, and in relation to others. And I'd be remiss without acknowledging the debt um, to the 20th century theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who many of you have heard me reference before in times of confession. He has a little book called Life Together on Christian Community, which um, I uh, relied on quite a bit in preparing for today, um, and which I'd highly recommend if you um, would like to learn more about the topic, especially if this turns out to be a total flop and you get nothing out of it, at least you know that in addition to scripture, there's a book that will help you um, with the subject. So I'm glad I could get a little joke in there just to, um, just, just to loosen it up. So you'll notice that the author of Hebrews is making an argument here in these verses. And we don't know exactly who the author is, so that's why I'm not saying that it's, that it's Paul or that it's James. I'm just going to be referring to them as the author of Hebrews. They start with the premise in verses 19 to 21. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Those are categorical statements. They're not hypothetical, they're not theoretical, they are true, categorical statements. And you see in in verse 22, the author goes on after establishing what Christ has done by making a series of three invitations to the reader based off of those facts. The first is let us draw near with a true heart. The second is let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And the third is let us stir one another up. So I rely on that framework all the time in my, in my day job as a lawyer. If I'm litigating a case in front of an arbitrator, I, just, I can't just go up there and start making claims with no basis. I have to enter objective evidence on the record, and on the basis of that evidence, invite the arbitrator to draw conclusions. And so that's what the author is doing here. They're establishing the facts, getting, getting the truth on the record, and inviting the reader to draw conclusions based on those facts. Kids, you'll do this all the time uh, in, your, in your day-to-day when you're playing with friends. They'll say, it's hot outside, let's go swimming. Or a more seasonally appropriate example would be, it's snowing outside, let's go build a snowman. Start with something that's true, it's snowing outside, and then you invite your friend to, to, do, to do something based on that fact. Let us do that thing. And so before we get into those invitations, um, we'll spend a bit, a bit more time on, on the facts, on the premises, on the premise in verse 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Both statements in verse 19 and 21 are declaring what Christ has done for us and is doing for us by his one-time sacrifice on the cross. 
And this defines the new spiritual reality whereby we now have access to God in a way that was previously not available before Christ's sacrifice. Before Jesus, only the high priest could go on the other side of the curtain in the temple into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence. And he could only do it once a year on the Day of Atonement or the Day of Deliverance. There was a separation from God in the era between the fall of Adam and Eve and Christ's death on the cross. Access to God, it did still exist, but it was strictly limited to a particular priest on a particular day following a very particular ritual. And that day of atonement that happened each year signaled the coming Messiah who would ultimately atone for, for our sins. And the high priest would, before atoning for everyone's sins, would first have to atone for his own sins. Before, in order to be clean enough to enter the Holy of Holies, to be in God's presence. And he did that with fear and trembling. Because if he made a mistake, he could actually be struck down and killed. Because he was in the holy presence of God. And he was unclean. So you can, you can imagine the fear and the trembling of not following the procedure properly, not properly atoning for his own sins. There was a real fear there. And that process had to be followed each and every year for centuries. But now, seeing verse 20, it declares a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. And the Greek word for opened is only used this one time in the entire New Testament, and it means to inaugurate or advance a new sphere of reality. The veil is torn, and the great high priest is now sitting at the right hand of God, and we have direct access to God's presence. We're no longer separated from God. Because of nothing we've done, we are considered clean and can enter into the presence of God, and we can do it boldly, not with fear and trembling. There's no fear of rejection or of death for not properly atoning for our sins. We're accepted. We can approach him with the confidence of a child to a king. To quote Tim Keller, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. So what does this new reality mean for us? It has implications on everything. And I see the three categories that are touched on by the author of this text in the invitations laid out there. It has the implications for our relationship with God, for our relationship with ourselves, and for our relationship with others. So let's first look at the implications for our relationship with God. That's the first invitation at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The author of Hebrews suggests that our response to the great gift of a new order with direct access to the Father should be to draw near to him. Not to keep him at a distance. We've just had thousands of years of distance. And it wasn't great. It's 
Scripture tells us in 2 Thessalonians 1 that hell is the absence of God. So don't keep your distance. Draw near. Listen to what God has to say in his word. Meditate on Scripture and have full assurance of faith. Verse 23, we see the implication for our relationship with ourself. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us not waver in our hope. Our faith and our hope in God, the promise of our salvation is a sure thing. We can have confidence in who we are because who we are is accomplished in Christ. We have access to God. We have a relationship with him. We don't need to question whether we've done enough to earn his approval, whether we've checked enough boxes to achieve salvation. It is accomplished, and he is faithful. Pastor Paul gave the example a few weeks ago of the bold confidence that a child has knowing that her parents love her compared to the confidence that a child who isn't quite sure. The author here is saying you can be confident in who you are because of God's love for you and what Christ has done for you. You'll notice what the author is, is saying is the reverse structure of the false gospel that was being preached at the time. Um, and what is sometimes still preached to this day, which would look like if you do this, if you check this box, then you'll get salvation. Then God will be faithful. That's not what the text is saying. It's saying it's already accomplished. Let us hold fast because he is faithful. Holding fast doesn't result in God's faithfulness. He already is faithful. So hold fast in your confession of that hope. He won't reject us when we come to him at 3 a.m. asking for something as trivial as a glass of water. So we can stand confidently and boldly in who we are because of him as we go about living our lives. So the third invitation is the one specifically talks about our relationship with others. And let us Verse 24, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The embodied fellowship of Christian brothers and sisters is very important in this new era that Christ has inaugurated. It's not just a spiritual fellowship or an intellectual fellowship, but a physical fellowship. Jesus' sacrifice for us was not just spiritual, but it was also physical. He came to earth in the form of a man. He was embodied. His body was crucified and died. He was raised in the body. And in communion, we receive Jesus in the body. So the body is important. And we are unified with Christ by our salvation, where we can say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So we are in Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. We belong to him because we are in him. And that's why scripture calls us the body of Christ. 
Romans 12, verse 4, For as in one body we have many, many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. He chose us from eternity. We see in Ephesians 1, where the Apostle Paul writes that we have been predestined according to his purpose. And so we as Christians who are chosen by God before the foundation of the earth, we all belong to him in eternity with one another. And what that means is that our community with one another is based solely on what Christ has done for us. It is not an ideal to be achieved, but it's a spiritual reality that exists. And that is what sets it apart from all other communities. It's spiritual, meaning that it's born of the Holy Spirit. All other communities that you know of or that you may be a part of are born of the human spirit. Bonhoeffer highlights some of these differences between those communities. A Christian community is a spiritual reality based on the word made manifest through Jesus. Whereas a human community is a human reality based on desires of the human mind. In a Christian community, power and honor are surrendered to the Holy Spirit. In a human community, spheres of personal power and influence are cultivated. A Christian community is about humble subjection to one another. A human community is about humble yet haughty subjection of a brother or sister to one's own desire. A Christian community loves others for Christ's sake. A human community loves others for one's own sake. Paraphrasing Bonhoeffer, he says, Because God bound us together in one body long before we entered into common life together, we enter into that common life not as demanders but as thankful recipients. We don't complain about what God has not given us, but are thankful for what he does give us daily. We know that the fellowship of believers is a gift of grace, just like our salvation through Christ. We have no claim over either of those things. This results in a community of brothers and sisters who go on living alongside us through our sin and need under the blessing of God's grace. We may have a very specific idea of what Christian community should look like and try to realize that vision. I'm certainly guilty of that. What Bonhoeffer argues is that Christian community is not an ideal to be realized, but something created by God in Christ in which we may participate by encouraging one another to love and good works. If the text was the other way around, do good, therefore you will have salvation, then it would look like a human community. We would then only be using one another in order to climb the ladder towards achieving what we want. But that's not the gospel. That's not how the Christian community should look. We have salvation. We are made right with God. So in awe of that inheritance and in honor of this new reality, let us love and care for one another. Christian community is through Christ in that Christ stands between us and our brother or sister in the Lord. We don't have a direct relationship to our brother or sister in Christ, to our brother or sister. It's through Jesus that we have this relationship. Bonhoeffer emphasizes that that means we need to realize, we need to release our brother or sister from our attempts to regulate, coerce, or dominate them with our love. 
The other needs to retain their independence from me, to be loved for who they are in Jesus. Human love constructs its own image of the other person, taking the other person into their own hands and molding them into our own image. Whereas spiritual love, which is love through the Holy Spirit in the Christian community, recognizes the true image of the other person which he has received from Jesus Christ. The image that Jesus himself embodied. We see the other through Christ. And so, in that knowledge, let us stir one another up to good works and to love. The author of the text is inviting us to do that. Let us not neglect to meet together, but encourage one another. And that requires showing up in each other's lives, holding each other accountable in our walks with the, with the Lord, living alongside each other in our sin and need under the blessing of God's grace. So let's listen to one another so we can learn about the suffering, the struggles with sin happening in each other's lives. James 1 verse 19 says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Let's be helpful to others. Allow your life to be interrupted for the sake of the other. Philippians 2, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And let's bear one another's burdens together. In Galatians 6, verse 2, says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Just like Christ entered into our suffering and continues to walk alongside us, we are called to suffer alongside one another in community hold one another up and to encourage one another. If you're listening today, you're here today, and you're exploring Christian faith, you might be thinking, I know of some non-Christian communities that do a lot of good. Maybe you're part of one. They're loving, they're selfless, they do good in the community, and I would agree. There are a lot of non-Christian communities that do good. The fact that Christian community is different does not mean that other communities cannot do good. They can and they do, but the difference lies in the why. Why do those other communities do good? And the answer is that it's for their own, for their own gain. People say doing good makes them feel good. They get a good feeling when they can help other people. Well, then that's for themselves, partially. Or they're doing it to raise their stature in society, whether they're going to admit that or not. Or to meet the specific requirements to live a good life according to the tenets of their religion or their worldview. And Christians themselves fall into that trap. Many falsely believe that their works on this earth will contribute to their salvation. But that is a false gospel. That is a rejection of the new era that Christ inaugurated when he died and rose again on our behalf. 
And that doesn't mean that our works don't matter and how we live our lives doesn't matter. It does. But our works flow out of our response to the love and grace shown to us by Christ and not out of a, out of a motivation to achieve salvation. That is already accomplished. Praise the Lord. We're called to live our lives as Christians in community. And Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Our faith is not just a cerebral exercise where we intellectually grasp and accept the formula for salvation and then just continue to go about our lives in solitude. It's lived out in the flesh alongside other sinners who are going to offend us and upset us just like we will offend and upset them inevitably at one point in time. But when we see our brother and our sister in Christ and through Christ, we see that just like me, they need grace. Just like me, they have received grace in Christ. And knowing that we have this direct access to God and that we have the confidence of a child who is dearly loved, we have less cause to be offended and more cause to extend the same grace that we know in Christ to our brother and sister in the Lord, to encourage them and to stir them up to love and good works. Our faith has implications for our conduct, for how we live our lives. And those implications are born out of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Because we died on the cross with him. And we rose again with him as he accomplished those things as our great priest on our behalf, ushering in a new era where we have access to God. So church, let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast our hope and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let's pray. Father God, we stand in awe of your goodness and your grace. Thank you for sending your son, the great high priest, to be the perfect once and for all living sacrifice who has atoned for all our sins. May you send us your spirit, Lord, to do a powerful work in this community that we may draw near to you, that we may hold fast in our confession, and that we may stir one another up to love and good works, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.